I'm not as young as I used to be, which means I can't treat my body the way I once did. In fact, last year's medical checkup didn't turn out the best, so I decided I needed to change things up and start eating healthier. One of the ways I do that is by making smoothies. But smoothie shop prices can be pretty high, and making them at home always seem like a pain. You gotta pull the blender out, find the right attachments, set everything up, and then cleaning everything is annoying, making it difficult to quickly whip up a breakfast smoothie in the morning. That's why I'm glad to tell you about the BlendJet 2 Portable Blender. Like I said, it's portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. BlendJet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. That's especially important to me because I wake up before the rest of my family, and once my kids are up, my morning work routine is pretty much shot to hell. And best of all, BlendJet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water with a drop of soap and you're good to go. BlendJet 2 has over 30 plus colors and patterns to choose from, so if you don't like one design, there's definitely one that suits your personality. So what are you waiting for? Go to BlendJet.com and grab yours today. Be sure to use my promo code, SuperCinemaPod12, to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the BlendJet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the BlendJet 2 portable blender. Go to BlendJet.com and use my code, SuperCinemaPod12, that's SuperCinemaPod and the number's 1-2, to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. My world is similar to yours in many ways, but very different in others. Oh, wait, wait, don't tell me. On your world, you're the leader of the Justice League. As a matter of fact, I was. Past tense. I'm not just the leader of my world's Justice League. I'm its only surviving member. We were systematically destroyed by a group of superpowered beings known as the Crime Syndicate. They've run rampant for years doing whatever they pleased. They rule through fear, occasionally turning their powers against the populace, just to remind us. In the hope of maintaining some minimal order, the authorities simply pretend they aren't there, but increasingly, they refuse to be ignored. The Syndicate has completely intimidated civil authority. The police won't arrest them, and prosecutors wouldn't press charges if they did. The only thing keeping them from completely overthrowing the government is the threat of a nuclear response. You people are my world's last hope. Welcome to the Superhero Cinephiles Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Constantine, and welcoming a new guest, another guest, not a new guest, uh, but a returning guest, and that is Gordon Demowski. Gordon, how are you doing today? Pretty good, pretty good. Glad to be here. Glad to have you back after um, you popped on to discuss the uh, the DCU update, and uh, this is kind of a nice follow-up to that because we are talking about another DC movie. Today we're going to be talking about the animated Justice League Crisis on Two Earths, but before we get into that, uh, why don't you tell people what are you uh, what are you interested in? What are you lately? What are you been consuming, watching, reading, anything like that that's kind of grabbing your attention? Uh, let's see. Well, I've just finished work on an academic paper, of all things. I've been getting back into the gothic soap opera Dark Shadows, which is, it has gothic and supernatural elements. You know, there's a vampire, there are werewolves, there, there's, there's even Parallel Worlds, which is kind of timely for this uh, podcast. And I will be presenting a paper on time travel, dark shadows, and transgenerational trauma at um, DePaul's celebration of time travel here in Chicago at on May twentieth. Oh, very cool, very cool. Sounds really interesting. Uh, so, have you been a, a Dark Shadows fan from from way back? Uh, is it something you got into recently? What's kind of your history with that? I I actually started watching it in college because I was way too young to catch it the first time around. I mean, I would have been like two. Um, mm-hmm. But I was I was going to I was um, commuting back and forth from Loyola. And I would, I knew about it just kind of from that kind of general cultural osmosis. You know, it was that show with the vampire in it. And it was just around the time that um, uh, MPI Home Video was releasing the show on videotape. 
Um, and so I started literally, it was like after class, stop at the video shop. It was like uh, two ninety nine a tape, three for five. So I just would get like three tapes and just blitz through all of them. And at the same time that I was getting involved in dark, watching Dark Shadows, I was getting involved in online fandom. And it was on Prodigy where I met a good friend of mine named Patrick McRae, who uh, Patrick uh, wrote uh, two books about Dark Shadows, the Dark Shadows Daybook and the more recently uh, published Dark Shadows Daybook Unbound. So um, and actually he and I reconnected about a year ago. So um, I've been kind of a like Dark Shadows is kind of one of my secondary fandoms, you know, if if comics are my one of my big ones and Doctor Who's kind of my, one of my big ones, Dark Shadows is kind of in the mix. Um, okay, cool. Very nice. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'd never got into Dark Shadows. I'd Speaking of those tapes, I remember they had them at my local library when I was a kid, and I always saw them like up on the sh- like an entire case like devoted just to Dark Shadows. So I remember thinking as a kid, like I'm like, man, I should probably check that out at some point, but I just never did. Um, and uh, but it's something I've heard about, like in the background here and there. Um, it's always something I've been somewhat curious about, but never curious enough to actually pull the trigger on tracking down. Yeah, because I know you can get it for free here in the states on Tubi, and I think it's also available on Amazon Free, Amazon Freebie, which is like their free ad-supported TV ser- service. So I don't know if you have them. I know Tubi is kind of, I think, U.S. only. Yeah, but I've got a VPN, so that's that. With Tubi, it's it's because sometimes with the with the VPN stuff, it sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Like it works with HBO Max, it works most of the time with Netflix. With Tubi, it's really unpredictable. Like I'll have it set up and everything, and it'll say sometimes it'll work, sometimes it won't. It's really random with that. Yeah, it it yeah it's. uh... Yeah, oh, the joys of streaming services. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, it's kind of like Peacock. There's something um, Peacock. Peacock, yeah, Peacock is. Uh, that's another one that it works pretty well, but it's just I'm not I'm not paying them money for. <laughs> so yeah. like, I usually a lot of the stuff that ends up on Peacock I can get here on Japanese Netflix. Mm-hmm. No problem. Yeah, because like with Peacock, for me, for some reason, it won't work on Linux. Every other streaming oh, service will, yeah. but not Peacock. Mm-hmm. So, um, so uh, like today, we're talking about uh, Justice League Crisis on Two Earths, and this is kind of a loose adaptation of the Grant Morrison, uh, Frank Whiteley graphic novel, uh, JLA Earth Two. Um, so let's talk about that as kind of a starting point. What's what's kind of your your history with either the graphic novel or with the I guess technically Earth Three concept Earth, because it was originally Earth to Earth Three back in the in the pre-crisis days, and then in post-crisis they got rid of the multiverse, although it still existed kind of, and so then in that one they had established uh, the crime syndicate as coming from Earth Two instead, and then in the New Fifty Two it became, or I think in the Infinite after Infinite Crisis it became Earth Three again, and I think that's also the same thing as what it is now. Um, but what what's kind of your history with this concept of the injustice, the the crime syndicate, or um, this graphic novel? Um, I actually read, I think it was a reprint of the original story back when I was a kid, and I know that I first really got formally introduced to them as a as a quote new set of characters with All Star Squadron because there was like a um, DC had their annual JLA JSA team up. And I think that year, and I forget the issues, but the they added um, All-Star Squadron to the mix because Per Degaton was like the main villain. So, and it was, so I think that the, I think if I remember correctly, the crime syndicate um, had broken free from their prison out in space and were attacking present day Earth, but there was something going on with the past and um, with the with the vibrating herbs, I, like I don't remember the plot. I just remember that's how I first got into them. And then mm-hmm. there was the reprint. And then I think later on there's a JLI Internet uh, J- Justice League International uh, annual in like I think the late '80s or early '90s where they had um, uh, members of the 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 the, 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 the Mateus Giffen League fighting like in this weird alien world and all the their combatants had had 
powers similar to like one hits power similar to like Blue Beetle, Elongated Man, and they they kind of hinted that they were somehow related to the crime syndicate. And so it was like they were in the antimatter universe of Quart at that point. Um, mm-hmm. And plus, I've always been a sucker for like parallel world, alternate history kinds of lip stories. So the crime syndicate is kind of like it's it's easy to see them as just kind of like an evil JS uh, evil Justice League, but they're it's more of like as as Morrison did, and I I read the graphic novel when it first came out. Um, it's more of a moral inversion that it's not it's not just oh we're bad because we're being bad. They behave that way because on their world evil always wins rather than good always wins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was something that stuck out to me with the the Morrison uh, graphic novel as well. Uh, I I had come to that's that's where I got introduced to them for the first time, and it was. Um, and before the graphic novel even came out, I remember seeing it. Wizard had this uh, this JLA special publication where it was like this this um, it was like a half the size of a regular is- Wizard issue, but it was all devoted to the JLA. And so, like, there's lots of stuff like interviews with with Morrison and the other creators, uh, lots of history stuff, like primers on stuff, and talking about as well upcoming things. And one of the things that Morrison had talked about in one of those interviews was about uh, the the um, the crime syndicate and their thought process in, in bringing them over. And one of the things that they had said was just like the members of the justice league have gone through a lot of changes in the time since they met the crime syndicate, the crime syndicate too has gone through lots of changes that mirror. So whereas Owlman was kind of goofy back in the, in the silver age. Now he's like this dark grim Avenger type, you know, while we had, um, you know, power ring. Now we've got a young power ring. Who's now taken over the role from the previous one, just like Kyle Rayner took over the green lantern role. And, um, I remember they had joked in the article about bringing in, uh, counterparts for Aquaman and Martian Manhunter because they never had counterparts in the original story. And, um, turns out they actually didn't. And in fact, if you look at the cover, they've got these, uh, these uh they got it's the the you've got the crime syndicate is on the top and on the bottom you've got the reflections of their justice league counterparts and where there's the reflection of aquaman and martian manhunter there's no one standing there so those characters right. weren't included in um which uh a little bit disappointing when i first read it but otherwise it was um, a great story and one of the things that did stand out to me was like you had mentioned that inversion thing the whole kind of playing with that meta idea of how you know, on Earth one, good always wins. Good always triumphs. Whereas on Earth two, evil always triumphs. And so, like the JLA, even though they're able to prove successful temporarily in stopping the crime syndicate, it only lasts so long because of just the way that the 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 u that universe works type of thing. So that was a really interesting meta commentary on it. Yeah, and I, I think too. Um... With Earth 2, it wasn't, um, I think Morrison also did a really good job in laying down the groundwork for how that world worked, which is what, it's reflected in Crisis on Two Earths, which is that it's like, there it's all about territories and the governments kind of give them tribute and kind of, because they mm-hmm. know that the, crimes, um, the crime syndicate is kind of in charge. Um, it's not like... Um, there's a precursor story to um, uh, uh, the the original uh, Earth Three, which was called Crisis on Earth A, where it's about the Earth One Johnny Thunder, who has his own thunderbolt. Someone steals his thunderbolt and says, "I wish that all my friends were the Justice League." So that one of his criminal friends uh, gets involved in the the accident that gives him flash powers rather than Barry Allen. You know, Batman has a cowl, but a mustache. So I guess somebody killed his parents when he was a kid. And, uh, you know, he got he somehow robbed a bank to become Batman. But it's but yeah, I think I think with the crime syndicate um, and there's even a, a series, a limited series from D.C. about, I think, two years ago where it kind of t- gave a little bit more of a modern spin on them. I mean, they're still in or three, but like the origin of Clark, like the origin of Clark in. uh the Morrison novel is basically he's an astronaut who gets ca- he's like captured by an alien spaceship and they do something weird with his physiology. So he doesn't come back quite mm-hmm. human. 
in the last um, crime syndicate uh, series from like, I think it's like 2020 or 2021. Um, he's basically the, you know, the alien who comes down to earth, but um, he's raised by the, by um, the Diane Lane and Kevin Costner parent, um, Kent from Man of Steel, where they just tell him, hey, nobody's going to do you any favors. Don't bother being generous or anything. Just people are going to screw you. So mm-hmm. you got to screw them over first. So, I like that with Morrison. Right. It's the, it even goes to the fact of where they get their power, where they get their abilities versus, um, okay, they're just like the JLA, but evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's also some interesting changes. Like, for example, Superwoman, who is the Wonder Woman counterpart, uh, she is actually Lois Lane. She's the, she's the Earth 2 version of Lois Lane. There's that one uh, scene where she's got Jimmy tied up and she calls him, and she, instead of being Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen, she, uh, he's Superwoman snitch Jimmy Olsen. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, and Owlman, as I understand, it's if I'm remembering correctly, it is not Bruce Wayne. It's actually Bruce Wayne's brother, um, if I'm remembering correctly, or something along those lines. Yeah, I think in the, yeah, I think in the um, Earth 2 uh, graphic novel, he is, he's Thomas Wayne Jr., which is, I've heard that he's like a, I've read that he's like a reference to a story that was in the golden age that I don't remember the citation, but that like Bruce Wayne had an older brother who just, I guess was like, um, he's like the, he's like Chuck Cunningham in happy days. He's like goes off and you never hear from him again. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah. And in earth two, it's commissioner Wayne. Who's it's, it's Thomas Wayne senior. Who's like the big law and order guy. Um, cause he even says, you know, right. anyone commits a crime in Gotham, I'm going to give him a bullet in the face and mm-hmm. owl man's kind of like rebelling against his dad. And I, you know, there, Jim Gordon is like the most, cor- I think, is he, is he a cop or is he a mayor in earth too? I believe he's, I believe he's like the commissioner or something. I'm just double checking oh. right now. Um, uh, so, um, in the antimatter universe, so Bruce and his mother were killed and then Thomas Jr. And Thomas Wayne survived. Um, and then, uh, Thomas Jr. becomes, grows up to become Owlman, master criminal, and an ally to Boss Gordon. So, like, Jim oh, Gordon okay. there is, um, uh, is, like, the, the crime boss there, and, uh, Thomas Wayne Sr. becomes the chief of police of Gotham City. Yeah, and they earth through the flash, instead of using the speed force, he injects himself with speed juice. Right, yeah, he's, like, a, there's a lot of stuff about him being a junkie in that, too. Um... Uh, and uh, some other little things here and there. And in fact, like one of the things that that struck me about that Earth Two story is that Owlman almost it it's almost like he's being Owlman as a way to combat his father because when he goes to the other version, when he goes to Earth One, and he sees that Thomas Wayne is dead, he like loses all interest in in conquering it or something. If my memory's it, it, again, it's been a few years since I've read that story. Uh, in a while. So I haven't read that in a while, but I, I believe there was something along that in those, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. And I think there's, um, yeah, cause I, yeah, I, yeah, I think with, with Morrison, he does a lot more to kind of give, give the crime syndicate a psychology to them where it's not, mm-hmm. um, where I think, yeah, he sees it's Thomas and Martha and he just, he just like crumbles. Cause it's like, okay, mm-hmm. what does he do now? He's on a world where, he doesn't have that that kind of push. So, yeah, but it was a it was a in, really interesting book. Um, I don't think it definitely not my favorite of Morrison's uh, JLA run, would de- but definitely a standout one. Um, and now, something the movie did that's interesting is it le- it kind of it mixes aspects of the original Earth three concept where everybody's an inversion. So the villains are heroes and the heroes are villains. So whereas in the earth two graphic novel, Alexander Luther, you know, the earth two version of Lex Luther, he is, he says he is the only hero on his earth. Whereas, um, in, uh, in the movie, you've got the jester and like, you've got their version of the justice league, which was all villains. Yeah, and, and I even too, um, even uh, Slade Wilson, right? You've you've got uh, Deathstroke, who's who's the president of of the of the U.S. in the Earth Two uh, universe. Yeah, and I think what's what's really interesting is that in 
in both the movie and the comic, um, Lex Luthor is still kind of an arrogant dude. I mean, he's still kind of a, like, you know, because he kind of strides in with, like, he knows he's, um, when he comes to Earth in, uh, Earth, uh, in the graphic novel, he says, um, he basically lands on a farm and tell, says something like, hey, um, I know your Earthlings, go take me to your leader. He kind of does the same thing in Metropolis. He just strolls in and says, hey, um, can you please call the Justice League for me? Um, and I think mm-hmm. it also, with the movie, it, I mean, it starts with kind of like the the intro where it's like the big action tag where it's he and the jester, a.k.a. the Joker. Um, and I thought that was interesting that it's it's not um, like you would think that someone like if the Joker were a hero, he would be more of a like funny, goofy 60s type hero, you know, kind of that, that golden mm-hmm. age. But like he actually opens he has like a baton where he opens a safe with acid. Um, mm-hmm. and he even at the end when he sacrifices himself, it's like, I've got one last joke, but this will kill you. And it's, it's a bomb. So you can see where it's not quite, the heroes are not quite like super heroic, but you can also understand that in that, in that world, it's kind of a, um, you kind of have to be that kind of hardened if you're dealing with, like, if you're dealing with evil Superman, essentially, Superman mm-hmm. is a crime boss. You can't just be like nice and and even in the movie, there's that kind of nice tension between what do we, you know, we don't do that. Um, mm-hmm. But we're also dealing with an enemy who is, you know, you know, we, we have to rethink something. Oh, yeah. And I think yeah. one of the, I mean, it's sorry, go ahead. Finish your thought. Yeah. yeah, I was about to say one of the cool things about the movie as it goes on is it's really all about choices and it's about mm-hmm. what we what we want, you know, that what we do impacts the outcome and thinking differently is not necessarily a, you know, a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, cause when you think about Superman and like Superman's, you know, doesn't kill rule. I know a lot of people who are, who are fans of the Snyderverse will, will criticize, um, Marvel fans, because they'll say like, oh, but, you know, Iron Man kills, Captain America kills in in those movies. How come that's okay, but it's not okay with Superman? It's like, well, first off, there's not that, it's not ingrained into Captain America and Iron Man the way it is into Superman. But also, Superman has that luxury of being able to find another way. And it it is kind of that, you know, the debate over pacifism, right? And And I think about this as someone who used to be a pacifist myself, where it's like, yes... You should try and find another way, but pacifism only takes you so far. When you're going up against fascists, you know, you can't really find a peaceful solution to fascism. There's pretty much the only, the only way to fight a fascist is with violence. Yeah, and sometimes you have to be forceful in fighting any kind of, you know, not just fascism, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, I um, I worked the elections in Chicago yesterday, and um, a lot of times with with all judges there there would be expressions of technically according to the rules when there are people voting you don't express a political any kind of political statement because you're not trying to sway the vote Mm -hmm. you're there to make sure that everyone but in between you know there would be the 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 pro one side and pro the other side um and i'm like you know look this is we're not here to have this debate we're here to make sure this election runs smoothly and mm-hmm. I mean, I had my opinions, but that was not the place or time for them. But sometimes, um, sometimes you have to stand up and say, you know, it may not necessarily be punching a fascist in the face, but sometimes you have to tell that you have to, you have to, when you're dealing with that kind of dysfunction and that kind of, um, you know, you, you have to use every, you know, I believe in every means by any means necessary. If that means telling mm-hmm. someone to back off, you back off. If that means getting in their grill, you get in their grill. Um, mm-hmm. And I think too, I think one of the big differences between the the graphic novel and the movie is that the graphic novel, the heroes decide, well, if this is a place where we're not going to win, we're going to leave because the when they're mm-hmm. facing the big bad, what they realize is, well, everything they're doing isn't working because they're in a war, they're in a universe where if evil, if evil wins, if it's a moral inversion, they can never win. In fact, the Luther in mm-hmm. that world is much more frustrated than the Luther in Crisis on Two Earths because, they, you know, 
Uh, Earth 2, Luthor, is I've been fighting these people. I need help. I need help. Um, Crisis on two Earths, or two, Earth 3, Luthor, is more like, hey, look, we got to get this done. Um, I, I need your help. I want to get this cleaned up. But there's a sense of victory at the end. You, you get the sense yeah. like, okay, yeah. yeah, there's actually a fine chance. But it's um, in the graphic novel, Ultraman basically grabs the big bad and, you know, for lack of a better term, lobotomizes him lobotomizes the enemy versus here it's more of a a showdown between Owlman and Batman and it's more a lot more existential but I think it speaks more about um really draws out the theme about choices and about mm-hmm. what happens when you make an appropriate choice um yeah and one yeah. of the cool things about this that go ahead oh no go ahead go ahead and finish up well, I was about to say one of the interesting things I found about I found out about this film was that it was originally there was a project that Bruce Tim had proposed called a Justice League Worlds Collide that was going to be the bridge between the original Justice League and the Justice League Unlimited animated series that died, but Dwayne McDuffie grabbed the script, rewrote it, and was able to kind of I think they they had to massage it through DC, who said don't make it canon to the animated series. But I think mm-hmm. this, this, you know, for me, this is one of the things where um, you change the voice talent around. You've got mm-hmm. like a really good transition piece. Like, I, I don't know if Dwayne like kind of just like did some white out and changed certain words or if he really massively if he had to do like a page one rewrite. But I think this does kind of bring out more of the um, kind of it's it's easy. to It's kind of easy to see where. Not only could it transition between them, but it it kind of ha- would have a little bit more thematic heft because it part of it's also about you know it's, it can't just be about all of us. We have to kind of increase our ranks because at the end, um, I mean, since in the movie the crime syndicate is structured like the mafia, where you know you've got they literally mm-hmm. use made men as a terminology, where you could see where the Justice League is like, oh, okay maybe we need to expand our ranks too, because we can't do it all. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Also one, one quick note I wanted to mention too, just about the, cause you mentioned the Chicago election. I just want to say, you know, thank you Chicago for making the right choice this time. Um, So that that was very nice to see. Uh, And also Wisconsin too. They picked a very nice judge as well. Uh, so it was, yesterday was a good day. Yesterday was a good day if you're yes. if you're a progressive. Yes, no, um, I yeah, I'm very happy. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so let's talk a little bit about dig into the movie. Now, I hadn't noticed known that about that it was this. It was originally based on that that Bruce Tim version, and then it was you know it was kind of it was canceled, and then it eventually became um, uh, eventually became this. Uh, I thought there were some interesting things. Like I I love. Dwayne McDuffie's stuff, you know, um, I love him as a writer or, and, you know, God rest his soul, but it, there's also some issues that I had here that also I had issues, similar issues that I had when he did Justice League Unlimited and also when he did uh, All-Star Superman. I felt there were some parts where it feels like he's pushing the heroes too much to that line that I don't think they should cross. Like with, um, with Batman at the end, what he does to, uh, you know, Owlman, and then also uh, to what he does to, to Johnny Quick, right? Because there's that, because um, when they're trying to, you know, power that machine or whatever, he tells Flash, like, you're not fast enough. Johnny, we need it. We need Johnny Quick to do it instead. Johnny Quick does it. And at the end, you know, he's still running. He gets, he ages up until the point he dies, basically. And he says to Batman at the end, he's like, it wasn't that the Flash was too fast. You knew this would happen, didn't you? And Batman, and you know, obviously that's that's the truth. And you know, Johnny Quick kind of admires him for for pushing that line. I didn't like that. I, I felt that was pushing Batman too far. What did you think of that? Um, I, for some reason, I think. I mean, I was a little. I was a little. As, well, that moment, I was a little astounded because, yeah, that is kind of, I mean, it's a typical Batman move. And I, for some reason, I thought I remember reading it in another Justice League comic. I couldn't tell you where, um, but it, it, it did feel like, okay, it's one thing to, 
to say it's one thing for Batman to have told the Flash, hey, look, you can't do this. You will kill. You will die if you do this. And Johnny Quick mm-hmm. is like, you know, hey, it's my world. I'll get I'll do it um, where you don't necessarily have the manipulation. It's like Batman's being straightforward flash. And then Johnny Quake is like, well, of course, I'm the fastest guy, so I'll do it. And then he dies. But then it's it's a little bit more. Um, I think at the end with what he does with Owlman and Owlman's an interesting character in this because he's very he's very existential. Mm-hmm. Um, very. I, like I kind of wonder what I wonder if he, I kind of wonder if he's like what would happen if Bruce Wayne's parents lived because the way he's talking it's about well you know there's infinite choices and you know the really the only really true choice with any significance is to destroy the world. Um, mm-hmm. I do think I'm not sure if they were maybe playing him. Um, and James Wood's voice work doesn't really help because it you know I'm not sure if he was if he really believed that, or if this was a guy who was suicidal, which mm-hmm. I know maybe reading too much into it. Um, I mean, I like the, the last line of Batman's, which is, um, you know, both you and I stared into the abyss. The only difference is you blinked. I mean, to me, that's a Kevin mm-hmm. Conroy Batman line. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think there would have been a way for, for Batman to walk away and maybe Owlman is, in that moment where he hesitates, then the bomb goes elsewhere and blows up. I do think tying Owlman to that, to the bomb is a little too much. Cause it's like at some, you know, again, it's um, Batman's never, I can see Batman thinking, you know what? I'm not going to kill someone, but if they die by their own, by if they die because of the consequences of their actions, or if he does mm. the whole, I'll turn, I'll turn this criminal's henchman against them. Um, and I wash my hands of it. I can kind of see that, but yeah, it does feel like it's, it does feel a little bit like, um, the ends justify the means. And it's not even done to like, there's no moment of see Batman. If you go this far, you could be just like Owlman because they're polar opposites in terms of personality. Um, right. And I, I, I do, but I do, I am, you know, to answer your question, I am a little, those do leave a little bit to be desired or, or there's a point where the flash is um, it's he and uh, Martian Manhunter on the riverfront. They're attacking the boat with fake Lobo and fake green arrow and mm-hmm. uh, fake black canaries attacking uh, Martian Manhunter. So the flash runs up, punches her, runs her out to the middle of the water and drops her and then runs back. Like he basically, mm-hmm. Like without knowing, can she swim? You know, she could have easily drowned because yeah. it's. I mean, the Flash doesn't just like go out to like okay, waist deep and and drop her. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's pretty clear it's far out. So yeah, it does feel a little bit like. I can see the whole. Well, yeah, this is a serious place. You got to take serious means, but it does feel a little like. Is this you know? Is this maybe could this have been like? been like work through could there have been another draft of the script to kind of think this stuff out yeah you make a very good point with that and as you were talking i i was thinking the same thing like it it'd be one thing if they go to these links and there's at least some reflection about the actions they're taking but that never happens right there's never the justice league is never critical of batman for what he did to johnny quick or i mean i can understand the owl man they weren't there but like, and I was, cause I was thinking in my head, comparing this to uh, Justice League Doom, which I think is probably my favorite of the Justice League animated movies. Um, and, you know, that story was based on um, uh, Mark Wade's uh, Tower of Babel story, which is, you know, one of the great JLA stories where Rachel Ghoul gets hold of Batman's contingency plans for the whole, for all the heroes and uses them against the Justice League. And then at the end of that story in the comic book, um, the team votes on whether or not Batman should be should remain a member of the league. And Batman leaves before he before they announce the, before they announce what they've all decided. And I feel like we needed something like that at the end here, where there's some sort of reflection on the fact that okay, 
Batman broke one of the central tenets. He broke not only one of the league's rules, but one of his own rules, right? He took things too far. Mm -hmm. He put these characters in a position, deliberately so, where he knew they would be killed. And Mm -hmm. I could see something like that, like Batman giving some sort of speech saying that, like, I did what I had to do on that world, but I understand that that meant sacrificing my position in the league. Something like that. I think we needed some sort of comeuppance there that we never got. Yeah. Yeah. Or even like a simple, you just don't, you don't, you don't need to know because even though he's not Mm -hmm. remorseful, there's at least the hint that, okay, you can be ambiguous as to whether he's, he's proud of it or not. Um, But it really, Mm -hmm. the other thing that strikes me, and maybe this is just me being a little bit obsessed about continuity. At one point he's fighting Superwoman who says something like, "Uh, that'll cost you a rib because it's when he first arrives on earth three. She breaks his rib, and then you don't see him in pain again until after he comes back from the universe with, with Owlman. Like, did I miss something mm-hmm. there? Or or mm-hmm. was it just like, did they forget about it all throughout the movie? I think it's, it's not something like they just going... forgot about. <laughs> yeah, because it's not like he's bending over at any point. It's like, okay, yes, I'm Batman, I'm Batman. Oh, okay, now that I'm back from the, the parallel Earth that just blew, you know, the Earth Prime, oh, yeah, my rib is hurting now. Well, that that's something else, too. I mean, that would be a good way, like, you know, show the consequences and how he's being pushed to the point. I mean, I think the rib injury would actually have worked very well in that scene with Owlman, right? You could have had yeah. something where he physically can't stop Owlman from dying or something like that. Or maybe he can't if he pushes himself, but he decides not to push himself because... So that leaves you wondering, is it just, is it all the injury or is it, is it him just using the injury as an excuse? Is it some mix of the two? Something like that yeah. would have worked as well. Yeah. And I mean, it, it really isn't immune. Cause I'm thinking of the scene where, um, they're at the white house and the pre- um, you know, president Deathstroke is saying, uh, um, you know, we, we can't, they're too powerful for us. You know, we can't defeat them like Superman at that moment says something like, you know, I've beat, I've like fought people bigger than me. And I thought, you know, that's not a Superman thing to say. The Superman thing to say is, you know, I know the odds are insurmountable. I I know that, that doing the right thing is hard right now, but we can, we can face this because we have to take a stand. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, you know, I, I also, and like at the end, I kind of thought, okay, at that point, when they come back from the unit, from, all that, you know, when they when they confront the the crime syndicate and Ultraman's like, well, you know, what are you going to do? Like, you'd figure that would be where where Superman would would walk up, say, well, you know, you know, you're doing wrong. Ultraman would say something and then Superman just knocks him out. But no, they had to bring mm. in the Marines crashing through a dome in on an oxygenless moon. So there's but there's no air coming out and there's tanks and like soldiers and Apollo's and old Apollo space uniforms coming in and it just felt like you know maybe like i don't know how much of the original script was converted or if it was just like Dwayne kind Dwayne mcduffie kind of said well here's some story beats i just need to fill these in but you would think that there's that they would have thought some of this stuff through i mean it's not bad for what it is i but i do see like the flaws in talking with it with you right now are becoming a lot more apparent Mm-hmm where it kind of feels like like the like um like with superwoman normally she's treated as like a wonder woman analog um and for some but luckily they kind of it's weird cuz they they kind of give her like captain marvel like powers they give her Shazam powers cuz mm-hmm. she's got the you know she's got um basically captain marvel with a goatee captain marvel junior and um uncle marvel uh you know, basically, who was, you know, ironically, who was just like an old guy who liked to dress up like Captain Marvel and pretend he had superpowers. Um, and I thought, OK, that's interesting. But in one of the, the scenes where they're they're describing who made men are, there's actually someone who's made up, you know, it's a headshot of someone who's presumably a. Um, the Earth three Mary Marvel. So it's like, OK, wait, it's. I don't expect like a one-to-one correlation, but you should could at least like, like with Johnny Quick, his character design, 
yes, he's yellow rather than red, but that I think is meant to evoke uh, um, Professor Zoom. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Instead of being red and yellow, it's like yeah, yellow yeah. and red. Reverse flash. And, yeah, yeah. And this is a dumb question. Um, why was Johnny Quick Australian? Like, were they trying to connect? I was, like wondering, he was, in of I was wondering that too. Like, I, I, I know they're saying like, okay, it's, it's territory. It's like they each have territories, but I could see where, like if they gave the green lantern, uh, you know, power, it's not really, he can't really be powering cause it's like a thing on his arm. And I think the implication is that that's it. He's got like a cybernetic arm. Cause at one mm-hmm. point he, he, he makes, he cracks something and superwoman says, Hey, you want to arm wrestle? And he just has a look. Um, but he doesn't speak with, like, say, a British accent or a Russian accent. Um, right. And, you know, Superwoman is kind of, she's colored, I think, to be, like, Middle Eastern. So you could maybe, like, explain it away as, like, she's the descendant of that world's Black Adam. Um, mm-hmm. With Superman and Owlman, you could probably say, like, um, okay, uh, Superman's in charge of America and Owlman's in charge of Canada or something. But I mean, why would you make Ultraman? I'm sorry. Um, but like, yeah, so Ultraman's in charge of, of, of the United States and now man's in charge of Canada. You know, he's kind of a moody existentialist. OK, that's fine. But but like, why, why is Johnny Quick Australian and not even like, I mean, we, I, he, he had a thick Australian accent that would make Paul Hogan blush. Yeah, yeah. That was a very odd choice, especially because, you know, James Patrick Stewart also did he's an American actor, right? So it's not like yeah. he it's not like they hired an Australian actor and it just like, oh, he just happened to give the best performance during the auditions or something. It's that was a deliberate choice. <laughs> I can't figure out why they made that choice. Yeah, and, and you can and you can even throw in, even if he didn't do it with an accent, you could throw it in a line like well, yeah, I'm st- I'm stuck with, uh, yeah, all the territories. I'm stuck with Australia. I'm stuck with, mm-hmm. you know. You even, I mean, it might be a little bit too, it might be a little bit too embarrassing because for for like 2010, you know, do you really necessarily want to start disparaging? Because like with Australia, then you get into like the whole Eastern Asia thing, and you you might brush up against some sensibilities. But I think. Um, it, it, it did seem like some of the choices they made were, it felt more cosmetic, like, okay, we've got the script. Uh, how do we, we pipe it up? Okay. James, um, Mm -hmm. do an Australian accent, do crocodile Dundee, because we think, um, you know, um, and I know that the project, the Tim project and the, uh, the crisis on two earths, James was the, was the only person who like transitioned between the two. Like he was cast to be Owl Man in the first, uh, first, uh, uh, you know, the Tim project, and then he was carried over. Um, and I, I haven't seen too many. I think I've got the DVD, and on all the promotional, like the featurettes and anything, he doesn't, he doesn't talk uh, much at all. I mean, I'm not sure if this is when he. I know he. I'm not sure. I kind of wonder, like, did he think of it as like being done for money? Like, was this just like a paycheck for him? Because like, like with Chris Noth, the voice work he does, um, you can tell it pretty much like, okay, he's there. He did his day. He got his check, went home. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Mark Harmon at least does a pretty good job as Superman. Now, I like the fact that he brings a certain kind of Midwest twang to Superman speaking, which is really nice because it's, but some of the creative choices, uh, I like, I, I go, okay. And it has two directors. So I'm wondering, like, was it a case where one person had to bow out for some reason and then the other took over? Was it a co-directing thing where they worked together? And I wonder if that's where maybe some of the tension is, where you don't have someone thinking, like, I'm thinking of something like uh, Justice League, The New Frontier, where it's mm-hmm. consistent because the art looks like um, a really cool variation on Darwin on Darwin Cook's style. The intro is like that has that nice early 60s Saul Bass where it does like it takes care of like two or three issues in like two minutes, where it's just very lovely, very graphic here. It's kind of like um, and also and this may be I'm not sure how much of an in joke this is, but in the beginning uh, with Luther and the Jester and they're they're attacked by I think it's supposed to be Hawk Girl and 
John, their, you know, Jed Jarkus, who's their John Jones. Why do they, right. they base Martian Manor, that, that character specifically on uh, the Tharks from John Carter? Because I don't think, I think Carter came out the same year, so it's not like you could go, oh, okay, there, there's enough fleet on characters. Like, like, was it just like, oh, yeah, the kids will really dig this one? Or if it was just kind of like, <laughs> you know, it seems like there's some really interesting choices, and I'm not sure if they were in the script or if they were just like, as you're producing it, you go, you know, we want to distinguish this guy from our John. So we'll make John humanoid, but we'll make this guy more alien, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. But um, that's also weird too. Um, and maybe I, I hope I'm, I hope I'm really reinterpreting this, but it felt like the character of Rose, like aged 10 years within the first, like uh, between her first appearance and second appearance. Cause I felt like mm-hmm. in her first appearance, when she's speaking, she comes across as like a teenager, but then later on, it's like she's in her early twenties, and it felt, at least for me, it was like, like did did I miss something in there, or is that just me reading too much? No, I I I picked that up too. I mean, Rose was kind of an, an odd addition in general. Like I thought that whole, I mean, I like that they give John more to do. I mean, I think this is probably of all the the direct to video uh justice league stuff i think this is probably the one where he gets the most spotlight which is also an interesting choice because he wasn't a major fixture in the um in the graphic novel so i i'm guessing this is another case of maybe they're bringing in maybe this is a holdover from the 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 one that was originally connected to the animated series um but yeah i thought rose was a that was an interesting choice um to have have this burgeoning romance between him and the earth Two Rose Wilson. I mean, I'm, it, it, it just, it, every time I watch this movie, it just strikes me as very odd. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it, it hits certain beats really well, but it's, you mm-hmm. know, it's, I mean, I, I don't think, um, yeah, I mean, we talked about justice league gods and monsters and at least like their, you can kind of see where the logic went because you had like, okay, mm-hmm. Superman, but Zod's his father, Batman, but it's Kurt Langstrom. But like, we were always like Wonder Woman, who's she like in that one here? It's mm-hmm. like, you can see. Um, and it's like, I, you know, like some things ma- kind of made, I understand why they did it. Um, Cause one of the things in the original script was the, um, the, it, it would ended with it. It would end with, how Wonder Woman got her invisible plane, which I kind of liked. It's like, okay, she stole it from mm-hmm. another universe. The, the, the circuit is broken. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know of any other, say, long-running British science fiction franchise where it involves a travel device with a chameleon circuit that is broken. I have not, I, you know, I, I, yeah, that, that I never heard either of those words before in my life. Um, so yeah, but yeah, it does. It's it's it's. I mean, I like it for what it is, but some of those things are just like kind of. It's I kind of wonder like at one point in the production were these issues. You know, it's it's not so much a finger pointing thing as you could see it if it were like say a director's style, or mm-hmm. um, or if it were just like okay, there's one or two minor minor plot points, but it did feel like. I mean, I kind of like the fact that instead of, I don't think you could have done the ending of the graphic novel, but you could do the, um, that kind of one-on-one, the, you know, the kind of the ending that we got, which is, you know, well, nothing matters versus everything matters, basically. Yeah, yeah. But it, yeah, it, it did feel, um, I mean, and I also kind of like that, I mean, the other thing is I like that Ultraman's just a, a flat-out thug. You know, he's mm-hmm. not like, He's not what we think of as evil Superman, which is I'm he's more like, yeah, I'm a boss. You're all under me. Um, I love the reference to the Ultraman signal watch um, mm-hmm. where they're um, he and Luther in Metropolis and Superman even says, do you, do you want me to take care of him? And Luther, no, if 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 this is going to matter when you leave, it's got to be me who takes care of him. So it's kind of like mm-hmm. that nice little ego, but also practicality. Um, yeah. I want and to talk about some like of the voice work too, because uh, we we kind of danced around him a little bit here. 
Um, I think that's one of the biggest weaknesses, I think, of this is the voice casting. I mean, you mentioned Mark Harmon. I think he does a really good job. Uh, he's one of the standouts in here. Gina Torres, a Superman, a Superwoman, mm-hmm. and Chris Noth as well. There, uh, and Jonathan Adams, too. Josh Keaton and mm-hmm. um, is also really good. Uh, and Nolan North, too, as Green Lantern, also a really good one. The rest, like, some of them, they don't really ring is true to me like i mean william baldwin feels like he's trying too hard to be raspy voice batman and it doesn't really land that much um and you know talking about uh sorry go ahead yeah i was about to say william baldwin sounds like he was like really desperate for work and it's like they're like he's like banging on the door and they're like okay yeah fine we'll give you 50 bucks come in do these lines and go yeah he's (laughs) he's he's the weakest of the voice cast Mm-hmm. And um, you know, you mentioned uh, James Woods too. Again, yeah, that's another one. It's just his his performance. It it doesn't feel like there are times it works, but other times it just feels too flat. And again, it just feels kind of like okay, he's just doing this for a paycheck. Um, Brian Bloom is Ultraman. Like I, to your point, I did like the thug aspect of it, but I feel like he tries he he makes it a little bit too Goodfellasy. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like a little bit too much of that kind of like stereotypical mobster voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can I can see that. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, like the I, I forget who voiced Rose, but that I think her voice goes from like, and I think that's part of the confusion. Side, it goes from like teenager to early twenties, and it's not consistent. As like, it's not like you start. It's not like she starts sounding immature and gets immature mm-hmm. more mature as the movie goes. Um, Trying to think who else is. So that was a uh, that was Freddie Rogers did Rose. Um, and it's just okay. you know again the, just the Rose is such an odd component in this movie because she also feels. I wonder if like in an earlier draft or something she was supposed to be Barbara Gordon or something because I get a very Barbara vibe from her in this. And, and I'd like to know, and and I I don't I wonder what what Andrea Romano was thinking. When she cast Bruce Davison as Slade Wilson, mm-hmm. because it's you know Slade Wilson is not a you know Bruce Davison is more like a like your your typical suburban dad, very upbeat voice. You know, for for someone who's been in the military, even if he's good and just, you need someone who's like I could see like imagine say Stacy Keach voicing Slade Wilson, mm-hmm. especially that president, because you especially in that universe you need someone who. If if you're if Brian Bloom's playing a thug, you know Stacy Keach is you're not going to mess with me, even right, even if yeah, he yeah. you know you want that impaired threat. Um, yeah, it's just I I don't know some of the voice choices, and again I'm not sure I'm not sure if this was a case of I understand why they didn't put it in the continuity of the the animated series because. I'm sure it was a case of, well, the way that this story evolved, especially if we're seeing like characters make choices that are questionable and a little bit more mature, you probably don't mm-hmm. want your George Newbern or Kevin Conroy. Um, and, oh, Wonder Woman. Um, Vanessa Marshall, who voiced Wonder Woman, I thought she mm-hmm. was kind of just there. Like, I didn't really get any yeah. sense of yeah. the character. Um, you know, I'm, I'm comparing this to, to Justice League Doom because I think you're right. I think they're trying to differentiate this as much as possible from the Justice League animated series, which is why they try to get these different voices. And 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 just but it feels like they were kind of they kind of wanted it both ways, because, like I said, Mark Harmon, he he hits a lot of the same notes as like Daly and Newburn. But but then there are other parts where he just doesn't it feels like he's trying to hit them and he doesn't quite reach it. Whereas, um, and, and then, and, you know, same thing, like with, with William Baldwin, he's trying to do like the dark voice, the raspy voice Batman, but it just, it just feels very off. Um, and then comparing it to Justice League Doom, which came out two years later, I think by that point they kind of realize, well, we don't really have to differentiate this from the animated series. The animated series is over now. So let's just bring back those guys and put them in this, in the, cause then they bring back like almost everybody from that series. Yeah, because at some point, um, 
you know, I wonder because there are two directors attached, I wonder how much of it was just being given different kinds of directions where, you know, Mark Harmon doing voiceovers one studio day, he's, he's, he's able to hit it because he's like being told we don't, what we, what we need here is force and strength or what we need here is gentleness. Cause there are times where, um, and I love the fact that at least when he does it, you know, it's, that, that kind of Midwest twang is noticeable, but it never feels like an affectation. It never feels like he's doing it right. to show off. But I think there uh-huh. might have been times in the studio where he's being directed and it's like his instinct may have been to go one way, but he's being directed to do it another way. And that's where that that friction comes in. Um, with yeah. Baldwin, yeah. It, it, you know, I, I just don't think it's not just he's not trying, he's trying too hard to do the Batman voice. I just don't think his voice is strong enough for Batman. Mm-hmm. Like Conroy yeah. did it, re- you know, that last line, I could easily see where, you know, um, that, you know, Kevin Conroy has that, that great Batman growl when he says you blinked. Cause mm-hmm. I mean, it's a great line. It's probably the best line in the, in the whole script. Um, mm-hmm. But his Batman is just kind of like there. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's trying, but it's not really, you know, he may have been, I think he may have been miscast. And it may also have been a budget thing where it's like, you know, like Harmon probably didn't come cheap. Uh, Gina Torres was probably pricey. Um, James Woods, um, I think he'd probably do it for like a, a ham sandwich, you know. At least, I, especially now. <laughs> yeah. But like some of the, and, and most of the others are kind of like stalwarts and, you know, they've done, they've done other things. It's like their bread and butter. So it's like, they're used to, okay, you come in, you do. Um, I think James Patrick Stewart, the only thing he's doing now is general hospital. And um, where, you know, to go from Dr. Z and Galactica to that. Oh my, how, you know, yeah. He probably did that for a ham sandwich as well, but yeah, it seems like there wasn't, um, I think there are some great ideas here. And I mean, I enjoy the movie, but it's like looking at it with some of the, the flaws, it's, it's kind of like, yeah, you kind of wonder what could have been, you know, how could you improve it? You know, mm-hmm. there could have been a lot that could to be done to improve it. Um, but I did think, especially the, the Rose John Jones romance, because if they're not establishing her as like above 18, she just sounds very, it just looks very skeevy. It's like older. And we don't know how old John is. He might be hundreds of years old, but it's like the perceived 30 to 40 year old guy um, getting involved with potentially a young woman, yeah, it kind of felt very unnerving. But I think it was just, mm-hmm. but that was as the person doing the voice didn't quite do it consistently. And is that an issue of, I think it's less an issue of the actors involved and more this direction. Because a good director will have that consistency and can kind of push people to kick it up a notch. And Andrea Romano the voice casting. So she usually has a be- a good instinct for matching voice to role. So it's kind of one of those, I wonder, it'd be interesting to know if this was one that they felt they had to rush out or if this was one where they took the right amount of time. It's just the ingredients didn't come together. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking about it's, I don't know what what Romano was thinking in this because again, like you said, usually she she does a really great job with these voice casting, but these ones it just it feels off. It it doesn't quite land. And again, it's not like you said, it's not a bad movie by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, I think it's one of the better of the DC animated um, films. Uh, like if I was you know if I was putting this up against like the the DC AMU, I think I'd rank this above most of them, with the exception of um, the. Uh, the death and return of Superman. I mean, I think it's, it's better than most of it's better than most of the other ones though. Um, but it's not, it, it doesn't, it doesn't reach the same highs as justice league doom. Um, mm-hmm. and, and even like the, you know, obviously not as high as, uh, the new frontier or, um, or even the Superman Batman ones. I don't think it's as good as those ones either, but it, it falls somewhere between that, but it is better than most of the D, the, the, the AMU stuff though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think, to, yeah. And I think um, I kind of, as we're talking, you know, if we're wondering about like 
what Andrea Romano was thinking. It was reminding me of a story um, about the Doctor Who TV movie in 1996, where um, Philip Siegel was Philip Siegel, who's the producer, was asked why they hired Eric Roberts as the master because they didn't necessarily mm. want to go for that name. And it was basically, well, Universal was co-producing it. They had a list of names as to, they had a budget for the role. And they, the studio gave them a list of names. And Eric Roberts fit that budget line, like, to a T. So, I mean, he was, you know, he's okay in it. But I'm also wondering if maybe some of the choices she had were like, Okay, I want person A not available. Person B not available. Uh, is Alec Baldwin available? No. Is Stephen Baldwin available? We don't want him. He he'll eat. He'll work for a ham sandwich. Mm -hmm. Billy Baldwin. Okay, yeah, I guess. And okay, maybe we'll save a little money on it. But yeah, but it, it does mm -hmm. feel like there's. And I think that lack of consistency. I think it's just kind of. Again, I think because you've got two people in charge. And I'm not sure who had the better idea, you know, if it was a shared, if it was shared, which means, okay, that choices were made to make the other happy, or if it was just like one person dropped off, one person dropped on. And, you know, the work that the good stuff was done by one person and the other person had to kind of follow through and maybe didn't have the resources they did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's... It, it's a good movie. It's just not. It doesn't. It doesn't hit those those highs. It's not as good as, especially with this source material, right? The the mm -hmm. the Earth Two graphic novel. I would have expected something um, a little bit more stronger, and I think a big part of that just comes from trying to remove it from, you know, ha canceling the DC the DCAU project and then dusting off the script, trying to incorporate it into Earth Two. And it just, yeah, it it just it it doesn't it doesn't hit the way I I hoped it would have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's for for me as well. Like I enjoy watching it, but it's not one I would, um, if I had to choose between say picking up. Like I've never seen Justice League Doom, so if if I oh had to you have got to see that, Doom. Doom is amazing. Yeah. Okay, I will I will I will put that on my to to watch list. Um, I'll check it out of the library, but like, um, I'm trying to, like, if you, if you had to put me in a room and say, I have to choose between Justice League Crisis on Two Orbs or Justice League God and Monsters, I'd, I'd sooner watch Crisis on Two Orbs because at least they're, yeah. yeah, they're at least striving for something and it, 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 it's, um, the hits are, are more numerous than the misses. Whereas with Gods and Monsters, it's kind of like, you kind of go, it, it kind of becomes, did you really think this through, Bruce? You know, did mm -hmm. you really think it through? And I think maybe not having that, that unified someone who had a clear idea um, and having like that consistency, I think really hurts the film. Yeah. Yeah. Co-signed on that. Um, so yeah, in, in some, I think that's a good way to, to summarize it. I mean, I would definitely say check out justice league doom before you check out this. They're apparently set in the same continuity, which I think is bizarre because they don't seem like they really fit that well together. But, um, but the nice thing about doom is, is the voice cast. Like they bring back Kevin Conroy, they bring back, uh, Tim Daly, they, um, Susan Eisenberg, Carl Lumley. They bring all of them back. Michael Rosenbaum, although there, there he's playing Barry Allen instead of Wally West, but still he's doing the voice of the flash. Um, but what they do too is, which I think was a brilliant casting move is they get Nathan Fillion to do Hal, Hal Jordan and it, it works really well. Um, so I would definitely recommend checking that out. I think it's a much stronger script. It's a much stronger it, it it's based on the the Tower of Babel story, although instead of Ra's al Ghul, they use the Legion of Doom, and it all fits together much better than this one. Like I think the changes, and I think McDuffie wrote that too, if I'm not mistaken. The changes he made to the Tower of Babel story, they work much better as opposed to the changes he made to the Earth Two story. So I think those would probably be my final thoughts. Do you have any final things you wanted to mention about uh, Crisis on Two Earths? Um, well, I would just add that if you are um, curious about the original story, 
um, seek out the Earth Two graphic novel by by Grant Morrison. I mean, you'll you'll notice the similarities, but the movie kind of goes off in a nice different direction. Um, but I I do think that if you're looking for a straightforward adaptation, you're probably better off with Doom. If you're looking for like mm-hmm. a variation on a theme, Crisis on Two R's. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Agreed. Um, I think definitely check out the graphic novel if you have not. I mean, that is. It's Morrison writing the Justice League, which is always a treat. But also, you've got Frank Quitely doing the art on that. And when Morrison and Quitely work together, it's magic. It there's there's nothing like it in comics. And so, definitely check those out. Um, but I think that about does it for Crisis on Two Earths. So, Gordon, do you want to tell people uh, where they can find you? Anything you'd like to promote before we close up? Well, I've got um, the DePaul Celebration of Time Travel on May twentieth. Um, you can find that via Eventbrite. You can also find the event listing on Facebook. Um, I'm also part of Chicago Doctor Who Meetup. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. Um, I'm also a new pulp author, and I'm currently working on some uh, other other works to be published. So you can find me on Amazon or head to gordondomowski.com, and I'll have all these links available for your for your browsing pleasure. Okay, so we'll probably be too late for that event because I think this episode is actually dropping in June. Um, but definitely check out that other stuff. We'll have uh, links in the show notes. Gordon, thanks for stopping by again. Uh, good talking to you again on another uh, Justice League animated film. No problem. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And uh, that does it for this episode of Superhero Cinephiles. SuperheroCinephiles.com is the website. Super Cinema Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And you sign up for our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Pod. You get these episodes a week in advance, plus um, with no ads. And you also get access to the Superhero Cinephiles Book Club companion show, where about once a month or so, we talk about comic books and graphic novels. In fact, by the time you listen to this, Gordon will have already been on to talk about the first planetary book. That does it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time. If you enjoy the Superhero Cinephiles, then you'll also love my companion podcast, the Superhero Cinephiles Book Club. All my Patreon subscribers get access to this exclusive podcast where I review superhero comics and graphic novels. Not sure what comics you want to read next or what you should dive into? I've got you covered on that. I'll be doing reviews, recommendations, and also talking to you about useful entry points if you're interested in reading some comics but don't know where you should start. Plus, you'll get access to all episodes of the main show a week before everyone else. On all of this, for as little as just a dollar a month, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash supercinemapod, and you can sign up at any subscription amount to get started. Thanks so much for your support, and please don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and as always, good night, good evening, God bless.